You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. Welcome back to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. This is Sarah. This is Chris. Cherie. Deacon Basil. And today we are talking about sin. And the gang is all here. Yeah, it's the it's the whole crew. I gotta be honest with you guys. I have very, very little personal experience with sin. So I feel like I'm really at a disadvantage <laughs> here um, when talking about it. But I, I know you three, and so we'll have plenty to talk about, I'm sure. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> that was lame. Oh, well, uh, moving on. You just be glad you don't hear confessions. I know, right? Yeah, I, yeah. Right. Maybe one day, maybe one day. Yeah. So, so sin. I think there's a couple of different um, views of it. it. What is it? Well, I think I think there's a couple of different views about it. I think that's what's important to to kind of start off by saying there. And I think as for us as therapists, it's something that we see on a regular basis. Uh, whether it's guilt about sin, whether it's concern about sin, the whether effects it's of sin, the effects of sin, scrupulosity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of things. So, uh, I, I see it as something that I that comes into the session on a regular basis. I mean, I don't know what you, what you guys experience, but it's something that I see probably every day. Well, why don't we start with defining what sin is on a theological basis and then go from there. Yeah, I suppose we could do that. That might be a good idea. <laughs> a good place to start would be the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, part 3, Article 8, talks about sin. The definition of sin that the Catechism gives is as follows. Sin is an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience. It is failure and genuine love for God and neighbor, caused by a perverse attachment to certain goods. It wounds the nature of man and injures human solidarity. It has been defined also as an utterance, a deed, or a desire contrary to the eternal law. So choosing self over God. Yeah, when I was in seminary... My rector made us go and rewrite every single line so that we could kind of understand it a little bit more. So if we were to rewrite that in a little bit more personal terms, um, what would that mean? Hmm. Going against what I know to be true, good, and beautiful. Going against reality, I think, is where I would start. I actually really like that, the second part. I don't like the first part. Really? Mm-hmm. The reason for that is, um, you know, in this definition, the, they mention attachment to certain goods, right? I think that was in there, right? Attachment to a perverse attachment to certain goods. And uh, oftentimes when we sin, we're not acting against the good in, in total. We're acting, we're acting, we're, we have like a disproportionate sense of the good. Mm-hmm. And so we're, act, we're choosing perhaps a lesser good over a higher good. Here, here's something really cool. How, everyone's familiar with the term concupiscence. It gets thrown around in Catholic circles. That would be the, the tendency towards sin, right? We That's how a lot of sin. people understand it. The tendency yeah. towards sin, like the, the sort of the, the reason why human beings kind of sin over and over and over again. But in the classic Catholic encyclopedia, which is like the old pre-Vatican II, like multi-volume series, it's very Thomistic. The definition of concupiscence is actually the yearning of the soul for the good. Interesting. It's just that when it's not mediated by right reason and directed like sort of in the right amount proportionately to the right ends, it becomes perverse. 
So most sins we can think of are a desire for some good, you know, either justice, pleasure, whatever it is, but not mediated by reason. So that's my take. Huh. Well, I always look at it as a person doesn't actively choose sin because they know it's going to harm them in some way, right? They don't choose to do something because, oh yeah, that's going to make me miserable. They choose it because there's some good or some attraction there mm -hmm. that they think is going to make them happy, mm -hmm. right? So the person that cheats on their income taxes is not doing it to cheat on the income taxes because of, I don't know, maybe they're afraid of, of not having enough money to pay for it. Why are you looking at me like that, sir? Um, maybe, I don't know. Why would I be looking at you like that? <laughs> um, or maybe, you know, maybe they they were unable to do the actual taxes or whatever else, that the sin is not that they were looking to sin. Mm -hmm. It's that they were looking at the good that came about, or they were looking at the good that they thought was going to come about because of the sin, or at right. least saw that. So in this case, they've chosen a private good, mainly, you know, their own accumulation of wealth over the common good, you know, uh, respecting the established laws of society and respecting the just distribution of their own money to fund public services and also, uh, you know, going against the good of prudence, which would, um, you know, ensure that their family is safe from legal repercussions of right. uh, criminal activity. So, yeah, they've chosen one good to the exclusion of this, like, big, broader network of goods. Right. And I think, for me, that's a really keen insight and is helpful, especially from a clinical perspective, because then when, when I sin, it's not that I'm this monster that is... Um, you know, well, maybe I am, but not. I'm not a monster who is, you know, trying to, to do terrible, terrible things. Right. It's that I'm actually trying to do good things, but they might not. They might actually not be. Mm -hmm. They might be those monstrous deeds. I mean, every villain thinks that they're the hero of their own story. Yeah. I think so. Now there is the thorny question of whether or not someone can do something truly evil. So, like, Plato thought no. He thought every evil act, the agent, is still acting towards a perceived good. The question is, can you actually act towards something you perceive to be evil? Mm. A lot of Christian thinkers say yes. And if that is the case, then those would be, like, sins you got, <laughs> you got a problem. You know? yeah. yeah, it's back to that kind of classic quote of St. Augustine, evil is no thing. Evil is a privation. It's, it's not mm -hmm. nothing, it's just a lack of the good. Sure. And so you can't act in an evil way necessarily from the good. I'm sure that certain people are going to jump down my throat on this one, but it's that you can't act in a certain way. You only uh, that is evil. You only are doing things that are not fully good. I I mean you know I'm going to appreciate that. So <laughs> I appreciate that one as well. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's an Augustine. That's in the Aquinas. Yeah, it's yeah. an Well, and it, and, it, and it's within Eastern thought as well. Yeah. Really. Um, very much. So, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. We all agree on something. Wow. But, I, Wait a but minute. I even what? think that concept is really helpful clinically. Say more. And also, end of the mic. <laughs> Just because I think that when people do something and it ends up not being good, mm. or it ends up not with the intent that they meant for, they feel like they chose to do something evil, or they chose to do something that would harm. Mm. And that they actively did that and they deserve to be punished because mm. they did something bad. And it's not that they did something bad, but there was just a lack of good about what they chose. Yeah. So you're saying it could help with, the, with the, the Catholic guilt syndrome. Yeah. 
or even even yeah that shame and guilt that that people tend to take on and it causes a lot of anxiety over choices and even recently i've been working with a lot of people that f- actively feel like they need to punish themselves right oh yeah That's because such a thing. even hey i i was late for work i chose to sleep in and now i deserve to be fired or i or even Clinically, I deserve to cut myself. I deserve to bruise myself. Mm-hmm. I deserve to feel pain. Yeah. She listened to that new Chance the Rapper song where it's like, now I'm missing work now, but it worked out. Have you heard that yet? <laughs> no. No. Anyway, and the weirdest thing is is when people get into that cycle and they like self-sabotage so that they get even more entrenched mm-hmm. in guilt. Like, like they'll their performance at work will go down. Yeah. It's really weird. Yeah, well, now I deserve to feel guilty, right? Mm-hmm. In a way, because I are, I'm already there. So, if if this is sort of the understanding of the larger church um, about how sin manifests itself, I wonder, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about how maybe Thomas Aquinas viewed it, or an August, uh, classical Roman thought. On yeah, this and thought. then contrast that with some Eastern yeah, thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. I think also we need to look at. So those would be two really good places to start, like the the Eastern Fathers and the Augustan Aquinas tradition, but also look at the, somehow those things get miscommunicated and we'll look at like the pop psychology, like the pop theology version of sin too. Because I want to talk about how like a lot of lay people might understand it just because they've absorbed it through osmosis. And I bet you they've they've missed some things. Absolutely. So I don't know if maybe one of uh, Sarah, you might want to, have you ever met someone that had a misunderstanding of sin? Oh, sin is just doing bad things that Jesus doesn't like. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so uh, we'll let you right? be the expert on that topic. Okay, in brief, uh, Aquinas and and, Arist- uh, and Augustine view sin the way the way um, Deacon Basil just described as a privation. So, um, in in Thomistic metaphysics, there's this idea that every being, insofar as it is a being, is good. It's good just to exist. It's good just for a rock to be a rock. And that means that human behavior is good, unless it's not. Sounds like a tautology, but it's actually really profound. There's a sort of a secular natural law philosopher named um, Philippa Foote. She's actually the one who invented the trolley problem. Problems, you know those arguments about Mm-mm. how many people do you run over with the trolley, and should you push the lever? It, They're stupid. So <laughs> asinine, and it's it's, it's what uh, philosophy one on one students uh, talk about and pretend to be really, okay. um, you know, really intelligent. Yeah. Anyways, it's really annoying. It's but, the worst. Just the worst. Yeah. Anyways, but so. she but she's actually really cool. I, I don't know what, why she had to do the trolley thing, but she she talks about one time being at a, like a gala with her students. And she was speaking with another moral philosophy professor who had a very different perspective from her. And she pointed to one of her students across the room taking a sip of wine. She said, there there he goes, doing something good. Mm. Good for him. And the professor's like, no, he's doing something morally neutral. So you can see right there, right? For the Thomas, things are good, right? Being is good. Acting is good. Things are bad when they're missing something, when there's some privation, right? So like, you know, if you lack courage, then your actions are going to be um, insufficient, right, to act for the end. Um, we might want to make a distinction, too. There's a tripartite understanding of moral behavior where you split it up into the act itself, the intention behind the act, and the circumstances surrounding the act. So the act, the intention, and the circumstances is like classic Catholic stuff, theology, Catholic stuff you should know. 
Ding. Ding. And um, so if the act is, if the act itself is evil, um, then the whole thing is going to be evil, right? Um, if the act is good, but the intention behind it is wrong, then you've perverted it in some, in some way also. And then if the act itself is good, the intention is good, and the circumstances in some, in some way make it wrong, um, then you want to factor that in as well. Oftentimes the circumstances mitigate your culpability. So like if you're under duress and you break a law, because you need to do that um, to escape, um, you know, uh, grave harm to yourself or your family, then your culpability is mitigated for breaking the law. So let's let's use a quick example. Murder is wrong. Murder is that murdering is, an that innocent is, is always wrong. That is the act. There's no that that's one be, of those acts that's intrinsically wrong. There's no there's right. no circumstance right. to make murder. But killing in a war. Is or killing in self-defense. In self-defense. Yeah, and actually, so those wouldn't even be considered murder. So that's right. kind of a tricky example. Right, well, uh, yeah, killing. no, I appreciate that. Let's change the term to killing. Right, so, so killing, killing... is usually wrong. You Killing is usually wrong. It could be the circumstances of being a soldier in a war mm -hmm. and acting a in self-defense, a, a just war, and where the act is wrong, but yet the circumstances are mitigated, and so that that might not be a... I mean, it's still wrong, but it's not... They're not yeah. bound against that. Yeah. Or it could be, you know... The intention wasn't there. It could be like, for example, a, a vehicular Mans manslaughter, manslaughter kind of yeah. situation where you accidentally, you know, run someone over. The intent, the, the act is wrong. The circumstances are are wrong, mm -hmm. but yet still the intention isn't there. That's right. That's right. And um, to make it more tricky, when you add theology, uh, you add God's agency onto this. Uh, Aquinas famously held that God is pretty much bound by by this as well. God can never do anything. Um, God can never uh, murder because it would be wrong, right? Um, but Duns Scotus, another medieval uh, theologian, argued differently. He, he actually argued that God can, in some circumstances, like his will is, is primary, and then these moral laws are subservient to his will. So like in, in demanding the sacrifice of Isaac, Scotus argues that away by saying, well, for God it's okay. I, I tend to think the Thomistic explanation is better because we don't want a God whose whims and fancies are are capricious. Yeah, that's, we want a God who's bound by a consistent reason. That's Islam. That's like God's yeah. will is dominant, and whatever is right is God's will. Right, but you still need to find some way to explain the the biblical passages where you seem to have things commanded that are contrary to right. our. I have Sarah's this one. Like, I got this one. I got this one. Nice. I'm Sarah's so happy right now. She's got it. Okay, so there are certain passages in the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, where they talk about the enemies of Israel. Um, and I think one famous stark passage is, we will smash the skulls of the children mm -hmm. of the Babylonians against the rocks. Imprecatory Psalms. I forget which number, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Dash the infants on the rocks. Yes. And... Um, Israel was commanded to wipe out, to clean out the promised land when they, after the exodus, when they were entering into the land of Israel. Um, and that required, you know, killing the enemy. Um, and the view is that it was a just act to go to war against the enemies of Israel because they were in possession or trying to possess what God had set aside for Israel. So it was an act of justice, not murder. What about the infants? They're innocent. Another way of interpreting that passage is digging out the baby vices that have started to take root well, and to rip them out before they have fully grown. That's the allegorical understanding, but I think you're, I don't think you've answered the literal interpretation. You still need to account for how 
Anyway, that's neither. It's a it's a it's a tricky issue. It is a tricky issue. And yeah, but anyway, that's the long and short of it, right? Is you have sin as a privation. Um, you have sin bound by natural and eternal law that even God is in some sense bound by. And you have to take into consideration the act, the intention, and the circumstance to truly understand any moral behavior. That's the Western view. Yeah, I think well, you've, you know, yeah. encapsulated it pretty well. Cool. What about this whole other tradition in the church? So the Eastern view... I mean, does agree to a certain extent mm -hmm. um, in that, and I, think, I I didn't know actually that the Easterns t typically viewed sin also as privation. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you you ask a church father, you ask ten church fathers, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one question, you'll get ten answers. But um, right. you know, pr primarily the the common theme behind um, behind Eastern understanding of sin is that sin is a sickness, mm. um, and that it is as opposed to some kind of, um, well, that, that it is a sickness that has developed and come into humanity at the fall. And therefore I have these tendencies towards sin that is a sickness within my, my very being. Um, and so the classic understanding of uh, kind of a, the, a, the big debates that happen between Eastern and Western philosophers and theologians on this is the concept that, e that Eastern Catholics and Eastern Christians pray about all the time. Forgive me for my sin, both known and unknown. And really the concept behind that is that, you know, I know that what I have done is wrong. And so I can ask for forgiveness in that sense. The unknown sin would be the things that I have done wrong. And I didn't even know about that. And that really kind of takes the yeah. personal yeah. sort of you know, the entire concept of, of the circumstance and the intention, you can still sin by not, um, by not even knowing that you're sinning. And the big struggle with this then is that, you know, well, should I just be this kind of scrupulous person that kind of develops and says, my very being itself is sick and I'm wrong for being that way. And I think the big, the big difference between Eastern and Western theology is that I am a broken, sinful person uh, I am sick with my sickness and God comes to heal that sickness in a very intimate way in ways that I might not even know mm -hmm. this concept of unknown sin mm -hmm. that I have sinned in ways that I don't even know that I've sinned and so it's this idea that salvation and and that purification that therapeutic tradition within the east is much more present whereas I even heard it from some people of you know sin is a sickness and an illness and and it's almost like I'm no good. Yeah. Like I'm tied to this fate and I'm no good and I don't deserve anything good. And people can follow along that line of despair. Yeah. Right? Like yeah, I'll never choose anything other than sin. That's right. The worst part of that attitude is it actually doesn't get you out of sin. Yeah. It's kind of, it's like ironic, right? Yeah. Yeah. People can get into this habit of self-flagellating and excoriating themselves so much for their sin and their guilt, but they just keep doing it. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I think there is this tendency, the way in which this kind of comes out in my understanding, in my life, as far as sin that is um, my unknown sin. I mean, by nine o'clock, I, in the morning, I have done about 1,500 things or, or not done 1,500 mm -hmm. things to be absolutely perfect. I mean, like Sins by nine o'clock, I should have, I should have woken up at five and I should have gone for a run and I should have prayed yeah. matins and I should have, you know, and I shouldn't have had that, that, uh, eggs and bacon for breakfast. Mm -hmm. I should have had, I don't know, dry 
dry cereal. Um, that should have, should have, should have. Dry cereal is a mortal sin, right? Uh, no, no. Dr- <laughs> moist, oh, no moist, moist cereal. Moist cereal, yeah, yeah, yes. This yeah. comes from our, from, uh, from from our Evagria section. But, but you know, <laughs> by, by that point, by 9 o'clock, I've gone through all of these things. And I kind of have those in the back of my mind. I think we all do to a certain extent. Mm. You know, all of those sort of missed opportunities that are flying by at light speed on a regular basis. And how do I deal with that? Well, I try and medicate myself away from that reality. And I think primarily that can be done through sin. Mm-hmm. I, I, can't, I can't take the fact that I'm not, that I'm constantly falling apart and I'm constantly struggling in this way. So mm, I'm going to go... I don't know. Look at pornography, so I don't have to worry about it. Because that makes me feel better, and that takes my mind off. And for the moment, you know, I can do about it. Right. This is just who I am. Right. And I've even heard the line a lot of "I'm I am dust." Yeah. Like from dust I came from, and and people kind of equate that with with sin. With worthlessness. With worthlessness. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm the lowest dirt. I'm lower than the lowest dirt. Yeah. And. I, I'm just a messed up, sinful person. Like, I, yeah, I'm lower than dirt. And I, I'm just going to stay there. Like, there's nothing I can do. <gasps> oh, it sounds awful. It does. But also, we're not just dust. Okay, cool science fact. If you look at your veins and you see the blue, yeah. the iron in your veins can only come from a supernova. This, yes, iron can only be formed, so all the iron in the universe is formed through supernovas, through the creation of stars. So at the beginning of the universe, when everything was exploding and imploding and being formed, when before we were even created, this iron was being made. So we are not just dust, we are stardust. Yeah. Oh, are, cool. The spaceman. <laughs> I like it. Yes! Sarah's like, oh, I'm gonna disprove your dust theory. It's like, no, you're not dust. But I even want to better than that. Deacon's like, I don't know about you, I'm made of desert sand. Desert sand. (laughs) It's all that moist, or lack of moist food. No, um, but I I think you're right, we're much more than dust. But at the same time, I do think psychologically, we do also have to deal with the fact that I am a rotten sinner. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I, 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 I. the Pelagian I, heresy yeah. would be the denial of that. Right. right. The belief that yeah. we're, um, first of all, fundamentally g- good without flaw or tendency to sin. And second of all, that, well, f- fundamentally, yeah, good with those qualifications. We would, we would agree we're fundamentally good. But a Pelagian yeah. would say we're fundamentally good in a way that excludes original sin and that through our own efforts we can merit salvation. Well, right. Pelagianism was wrong. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm even trying to, for some reason, I can't think of the specific saint right now, and so maybe one of you can help me out. But I remember reading in a few saints' writings of the idea of, like, I'm a rotten sinner, or, Lord, I am so sinful. Like, I am dust. Like, they would go into that. Mm-hmm. But there would be the part where they'd be like, Lord, help me out of this. Yeah. Help me to be better, because this is where I'm at. But they would also, the saints would warn against that despair of, like, this is where I'm at and Mm -hmm. there's no way out. Um, Is it it triggering? Who? Is it triggering? Yeah, I think it's Therese of Lisieux. Yeah. like her. my my guess. mm -hmm, Her writings, like, she's so incredibly scrupulous Mm -hmm. in the beginning of her writings. And her 
relationship with Grace develops the more that you mm. read her mm -hmm. autobiography, Story of a Soul. That's cool. Mm -hmm. um, That's probably where I remember now, just to place it. Progression. Yeah. yeah, and also some of the saints are also quite candid about their virtues, too. I mean, yeah, I mean, certainly many of them are, they have a humility that we all lack, but uh, I remember a while ago... Speak for yourself. <laughs> I am so humble. There you go. Well, yeah. <laughs> Damn it, sir. <laughs> I, I flipped open to a random page of um, St. John the 23rd, Pope St. John the 23rd's journal once in a bookstore, and there was like a, a section where he's like, oh, a lot of people struggle with lust. I never struggled with lust. never had that problem. <laughs> I've had other problems, but that hasn't been one of them. It's just yeah. been easy for me. <laughs> like that's nice. Like you take him in his word. Like John, like he's obviously he's like this good old jolly Italian saint, and I'm sure he never. I'm like everyone else had that problem, but not him. No, nope. like you everyone can, has their own problems. Sure, that wasn't his. Sure. So like you know, I, some people I think are just always looking for ways to get down on themselves, but you know that we ought not to learn that from the saints because that's not that wouldn't be the right takeaway. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that it, that it is a both end. That, um, you know, we are a little less than, than the angels, a little less than the gods, as, as uh, the psalm would say, mm -hmm. but we're also uh, about one step above the animals as well. Yeah. That, it, that it's a both end. In some ways, um, we're, and that's we're okay. worse than yeah. the animals. The animals don't do things out of malice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think even theologically, some are taught that we're one ahead of angels. Because we're made in the image and likeness of God, and that uh, angels are sometimes jealous of us because of that. Well, that's the, one of the theories about mm -hmm. the fall of Lucifer. Yeah. Um, is that he was jealous of humans' ability to create, basically, hmm. to reproduce. Um, I haven't heard that. Yeah, that's I interesting. Know. I would have, huh. I mean, I had heard jealous of the communion that God would have with man. Um, I, I, I'd, I'd also just, I mean, he had heard that he refused to follow, yeah. mm -hmm. refused to obey. Yeah. I don't know. Well, Maybe. because we are matter, because we are less than the angels because we are matter, not just pure spirit like they are. Mm -hmm. um, and God's plan was to become one of us and to become basically less than. Lucifer felt he could refuse to worship something that was beneath him. Yeah. yeah, it's like I will only serve what is greater than me, not right. what is you're gonna, less you're gonna than You're going to become me. something that's less and I don't want to follow that. Yeah. So I want to get back a little bit to this concept of um, this sort of how despair can come into this. And so it's just like, well, I just I'm just, this is who I am I am so and, and And I just need to stop, you know. And I think one of the one of the things that I've seen this play out um, not clinically, but actually pastorally, is this idea of like, I just need to, like, this is just who I am, and I just need to kind of just go on and just sin and come back to confession and just, just be okay with that. Learn to live with it. I need to just learn to live with my with my sin. And so if it's just, you know, if it's lust, I just need to learn to live with it. If it's avarice, I just need to learn to live with it. And I think both East and West agree that you can't just stay static in that regard, yeah. That that the spiritual life and we talked about well, I, I talked about this in one of our one of our uh, question and answers. But the spiritual life is not just simply about being static and being okay with sin, but it's actually a a process of of working through my sins and and putting in treatments so that I don't sin anymore. I mean, that's 
what originally the penance aspect of confession was was you're doing something to stop so that you're not sinning you're not mm-hmm. going to sin in the same way right. and that is um, Evagrius of Pontus that's um, John Cashin that's John Climacus all of the well Evagrius wasn't a saint but St. John uh Cashin, uh, St. John uh, Climacus, St. Gregory Paulinus, but this idea of treatment for the sins, that you just can't stay static in there, is is primarily there. St. John Cashin, excuse me, St. John Climacus, Climacus meaning of the latter, he wrote the entire ladder of divine ascent. Very similar to, um, well, it predates um, this, but very similar to um, St. John of the Cross's um, divine, uh, the uh, ascent of Mount Carmel, oh, the wow. divine ascent. Um, you know, you have these images of not staying static. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where therapy can really play out in a practical way mm-hmm. of not staying static in our sin. Well, yeah, there's this um, quote in biology. Um, dead things don't grow. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 In that book um, that I that you have right next to you, uh, what? I haven't class? read it. What? Huh? There's a part where he talks about like a sick noose. You know, like the soul, the understanding part of the soul is is characterized by just doing the same sin over and over and over again. So. Well, that's also the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over again. That's one of those quotes that always gets attributed to, like... Einstein? Yeah, it's like... You know how, like, people misquote, like, Mother Teresa? It's all like, the time. All you need is love. Mother Teresa, you know? No, it's, it's the like, Beatles. No, it's Mother Teresa. <laughs> the Beatles were quoting Mother Teresa. nothing to fear, but fear itself. Mother Teresa. It's like... That's the same thing with, like, Albert Einstein. He always gets, like, the wrong... But so this idea of, like, not being static from a therapeutic perspective, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think how that can come out in classic ways. So it could be the cognitive model, which would be perhaps looking at those sins and looking at the beliefs that we have behind ourselves in those sins. It could be looking, you know, from a systemic perspective, what are the systems that are consistent, that are leading to these kinds of sins? So how is my family yeah, unit? Where, where did it come from, right? Right. Like, where's the origin? And it might not have started with you. Right. Mm-hmm. Right? You might not even know the difference because that, it's your normal. Right. Because mm-hmm. that's how you grew up. Right. 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 Intergenerational stuff. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know no difference. I didn't know that this was, wasn't the way to talk to somebody or act towards somebody or to just be and to live life. And because yeah. this is what everybody around me did. That really, I mean, that ties in with this idea that sin is a habit, just like mm-hmm. virtue is a habit. And so... It's, it's like something that you don't really deliberate about. Oftentimes it's just automatic. It's like what you default to. And if you grew up in a, in a home that imbued you with some dysfunction, then you go out into the world with these habits. And it's very much that sickness idea. Yeah. Or it could be trauma, perhaps. Oh. You know, because of my past trauma, whatever it might be, it leads me to, you know, if I had past trauma in relation to... To men or women or you know whatever else and then I have this anger towards them you know if it could be past trauma in relation to specific things it, it can lead out through through sin now we should uh, yeah. we should do a caveat here about sin and sickness and what we're saying and what we're not saying great I was just gonna try to <laughs> tie it in <laughs> tie it in or I wanted to expel upon that and maybe Deacon Basil you can help me with that of distinguishing what we mean when we say sin is a sickness because I think that and even in my conversations with other people that can be highly misinterpreted and maybe even our listeners right now might be going you're you're talking about sin as a as a sickness yeah. like what does that look like 
And what does that really mean? Because so if you sing a lot, that means you get you, you get, get sick like, a lot. You get sick. You get a cold or worse. Yeah, or you get rheumatoid arthritis. Right. All those Cancer. Times you looked at porn. Right. Or even thinking about okay, we're. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> I like totally. <laughs> Oh, that is totally in there. Cut, cut some of the okay. other stuff here, but um. <laughs> okay. I promise we so, are decent people. So when we hear sin is a sickness, right? We can think of, and also relating it back to, we're all sinful, and we have original sin, and that's a part of us. And so there's this idea that's like if we already come with original sin, that then. If it's a sickness, then we all deserve to be sick. Right. Like, what about sicknesses that we can't help, like cancer or things we're born with, you know, mm-hmm. and infants? And right. How do I make sense of that with what we're saying? Mm-hmm. I think it's actually, from an Eastern perspective, I think that's really interesting because it's like, it is not my fault if I get the flu. Um, mm-hmm. If I'm just on an airplane and I get... You know, and I get the flu after the flight. Yeah. That's not my fault, right? Sin microbe didn't get. Yeah, it. you didn't. But, but so, so that analogy I think is very present in the understanding of sin. Well, it's just from that. A it's an analogy. It's an analogy, but it's it's very very similar in the sense that I am not responsible for the fact that sin is this. I have this tendency towards sin. Mm-hmm. But I also have a responsibility not to sneeze on somebody. I really like that. When I'm when I have the flu, and I have then the responsibility not to try and and the responsibility to get help, and the responsibility to get to help seek treatment to seek to seek the treatment. So back to that idea of you know, just we're not saying that it's a one to one comparison that you are going to get uh, that you are going to be sick because you sinned uh, physically. Nor are we saying that if you're sick, you're going to then get a sin, which most people or don't say it's that way. If you're but you know, sick then like. Looking at somebody who's terminally ill, or you know, people don't understand why. Why me? Why did I get cancer? I think that's right. the one. And well, I was such if, a good if person. Sin, if illness is caused by sin, then somebody who's ill, well, you must be. You must you be must, terrible. You must be terrible. You must God be must be punishing sinner. you. Yeah, Extra yeah. bad kind Extra of person. Extra bad and being punished. And Sarah, could you what? read from the Gospel of John, starting from the beginning of chapter 9, to dispel that theory? Oh, I love this one. <laughs> the healing of the blind man. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. I think that's good. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, not to question the gospel, but St. Paul actually does in, I think it's Corinthians, the reason why so many of you are sinning, or excuse me, the reason why so many of you are getting sick is because of your sin. Is that with respect to reception of the Eucharist? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, that's not saying even if you receive the Eucharist in a state of, of sin and separation from the church, that you are then going to get sick. Yeah, well, there's so a think, general... Yeah, go ahead. I, I think there is this development that has happened, and I think the church has made very clear that they're falling on the side of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. They're falling on the side of Jesus over Paul, I think is what they're basically saying. John, in this case. I'm sorry, John. 
Um, oh, but but Jesus. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Paul. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't want to pit them against each other. No. I, I think there's a general sense in which we can say that the fall created disorder. It brought death into the world. It brought disease into the world. It brought sin into the world. That doesn't mean there's a one-to-one correspondence between your personal sin and your afflictions. In fact, probably some of the most morally despicable people on earth are very healthy. They do CrossFit. They do Whole30. I'm sure they're in great shape and they can be moral monsters. So no, there's no... And great saints like Evagrius die at 55. Oh my gosh, um, Saint Rafka or was Saint like Rafka. So or... sick. Her bones. Uh, she had some condition where her bones disintegrated. Yeah. And she would like crawl to to the Eucharist. Or, huh. or, or even more recently, um, you know, the Saint. Blessed Caraluce, um, who yeah. was an Italian teenager, who I think developed leukemia or cancer, some sort of cancer, um, and she was this like super holy, awesome chick. It's like <laughs> this is the yeah. Like, yeah, she, cool was a, chick. she was like 19 when she died. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's so, another blessed Kiara who lost her eye from cancer. I don't remember her last are you name. Are Teresa Lazoo? Yes. Yeah. So many. Tuberculosis. Yeah. Probably dispropor- disproportionate number of saints had like serious illnesses. So what are you thinking go. of? Yeah. I honestly was trying to be quiet so that you could throw the name in because I couldn't remember the name. <laughs> that's why I, that's why I had that nice Teamwork, fade there. Kids. You see, but uh, but I think I think the key about this is that it's not a one to one comparison, mm-hmm. and also that spiritual sickness is a consistent state of humanity, and yet that doesn't give an excuse to then just sit in it. And therapeutically, from a from a from a Psych- psychological state, we can use actual psychological interventions to assist those uh, in in the reduction of sin, um, because sin is behavioral. Sin is um, a psychological uh, thing. Now, most of the saints would then say repentance is the first step in fixing sin. Right. And did you have something to say about that? <laughs> because I'm about to I'm about to blow like your the, mind. It almost looks like the twelve steps, like the. Oh. No, absolutely, absolutely. Totally, the 12 steps are so profound. There's a really interesting book um, by an Orthodox priest um, that relates it back to this Eastern theology. It's it's, uh, the 12 steps of torch salvation or something. That's so phenomenal. I love it. Anyways, the repentance in Greek, do you guys know what repentance in Greek is? Repentance? We told you not to embarrass us on mic. That's my impression of Deacon (laughs) Baz. Thank you. No. Does it mean, no, that's... Metanoia. Metanoia. Yeah. Now, meta. I would have no, said it if you'd given us. You, I, I know. That's the I know, word I would get tattooed more. on my body if I got a tattoo of, in Greek. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> metanoia. Meta meaning to change. Metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. Meta to change. Noia. There's a word you said earlier. Soul. Noose. Noose. To change your mind. Mm-hmm. Repentance means to change your mind. And interestingly enough, the noose in Greek understanding is in the heart. So metanoia means to change one's heart. Oh. The first step to fighting against sin is to change the way in which we view the world. To view it not as man sees it, but to see how God sees it. Mm-hmm. And to see ourselves in the relation to God. I think that's what's that's so beautiful. Cool. Right? It's really beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I told you I'd blow your minds. Anyways, Aww. the next step with that then is it's metanoia to change the way in which we are viewed. We, we view ourselves. And for me, 
those are the core beliefs that we have about ourselves. That's true. So if I'm causing these sins, what I have to change is the way in which I see myself, the ways I have these beliefs about myself mm-hmm. that we have to then change. And I have to change that first before I can change my behavior. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, I think behavioral interventions can be effective, but sometimes, you know, we'll find ourselves stuck in these ruts where we're just focusing on the behavior, which is like the end of the, in terms of the cognitive model, it's the very last mm-hmm. part. Yeah. And so there's all these other steps that you've neglected. Yeah. One other thing about metanoia, I meant to mention this earlier, I think there's a rich biblical perspective on sin, and um, I don't know... Hebrew, but I've heard from people that know Hebrew that the Hebrew word for sin has this etymology of meaning like missing the mark. And so you get this idea of sin as privation even in the Old Testament. But think about that too with this metanoia. What you're doing is you're changing, you're reorienting yourself so that you hit the target. Yeah. It's kind of cool. (laughs) Yeah. Makes it seem attainable, actually, hearing it put that way. I think for so many of us, like Sheree, you talked about despair. The problem is that it, it. Virtue seems unattainable. It seems impossible. Holiness seems impossible. Mm-hmm. Sin is all you know. Yeah. While while Deacon is is uh, <laughs> engaging in the sin of phone addiction. But I no. can even think about even recently with a client that I've been seeing. You know, she, she she even asked me for a behavioral intervention. Cherie, I just want to stop doing this. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even necessarily sinful in nature. It was just not very effective or causing conflict in a relationship, right? Because it was communicating that maybe she wasn't thinking about it or didn't care. And, and we keep going over and over, just wanting to try to find something different to do. And I stopped her and I went, wait a minute. I'm like, I can give you all the things in the world to do differently, but it's not going to get anywhere. We need to spend some time on just focusing on just even how you view yourself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then you find that the other things clear up mm-hmm. when you reorient yourself. Mm-hmm. I, my, uh, my favorite quote from St. Basil, um, I mean, it was, it was like, so it was one of those things that you were just reading along and all of a sudden you stumble upon it and it's like, this changes everything. Oh, wow. Um, and it, it's, it's on our website actually. Um, I'm sure you all know that. Um, but uh-huh. <laughs> yep. there is still time for endurance, time for patience, time for healing, time for change. Mm-hmm. And I think what St. Basil is really getting at is that, you know, sometimes as, as therapists, we'll have people come in and be like, I am hopeless about where this is going to go. I am hopeless because of all of my past sin. I am hopeless because of the, the struggle that I'm having with this addiction. I am str- I'm hopeless because of all of these different things. And for, for all of that incredible pain, they, they're being disagreed with by, by St. Basil. Yeah. You know? That I'm there gonna is. Go with Basil. Th- yeah. I'm going to go with yeah, and and Saint Basil, right? Uh, <laughs> you c- we couldn't we couldn't add the great That's to clarify it. We couldn't add we couldn't add the great uh-huh. to clarify it. It wouldn't help at all. But um, wow. once again, humility, folks. Right, right? Oh, so but I think I think the key is is that there's always hope for that. There's always hope for wherever we might be at to then develop and and, and to grow. And for me, that's an incredibly exciting thing because it means you know, where we need to move forward is, is that there's always hope for where we're, where we're going. Yes. I would love for us to do an episode on hope 
in the future. Mm. Because I think a lot of people misunderstand what hope is, but my favorite image of hope is the ancient um, use of the anchor as hope. And anchors are used to plant ships in the middle of a storm so they don't blow away. Mm -hmm. I feel like you, you talked about the anchor in our depression episode. I probably like, did. Really. I really love anchors. For, <laughs> really grounded like, our conversation. For, you know, the roots in a tree, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. That deep roots can weather any storm. Did you just quote Tolkien? <laughs> Maybe a little. Maybe a little. Maybe. <laughs> that, that, that probably would be correct when you <sighs> so. Let's hope. I mean, your, your boy Ratzinger. <laughs> Space Salve was a really great. I love Space Salve. Great encyclical about hope and faith. So it's, uh, maybe we can look at that. Yeah, I mean, one thing that comes to mind, Deacon, is that like I think a lot of people, a lot of Catholics, have this experience of having habitual sins, sins they commit over and over again, and they just they, there are things they have never considered that can help them out of those cycles, and oftentimes they get they they get sound spiritual advice and they get the grace of the sacraments, right? Correct? But they don't get psychological advice. So yeah. that's something missing, I think. The church, mm -hmm. it, would, it would behoove the church to recover this tradition of, like, psycholo psychological healing. Yeah. Yeah, well... Isn't that what we're That's what we're doing, right? That's what we're going with this. <laughs> uh, no, you're absolutely right. And, and you know what's really funny about that? I have never, when I introduce myself to a pastor and say, hey, we're just down the street, you know, Mount Tabor Counseling, we just opened up a branch, or, you know, whatever. I've never had a priest be like, oh, I have no need for you. Like, like We've got I've it got covered. it all yeah, covered. We've got the you know, sacraments, you know, we don't need you. Exactly. Like, like, like we're completely on top of it here um, because we've got, I don't know, perpetual adoration and the sacraments and, you know, we've got this kind of spiritual direction uh, thing. All of those are good, helpful, and important and necessary. In whatever, you know, however that yeah. manifests within your tradition. We don't have adoration in the East. But, you know, there is that um, that really important aspect that all of those are necessary. But they're not complete complete in every way for every single person. Right. Where psychological healing is certainly there. And the church has always agreed with this. This is the entire concept of the unmercenary healers. That's right. They, they, this isn't some new thing. This isn't a new thing, you know. The, the entire concept of, you know, St. Cosmos and Damien, they were doctors you know yeah mm -hmm. yeah st luke was a doctor you know and and that it was not just well we've got this completely covered we've got anointing of the sick mm -hmm. we're and done just magically heal everything won't it right and it doesn't because that's not the way in which the sacraments work and that's not the way in which god works that's not the way in which god works and i think this ancient understanding is is kind of slowly being recovered even in the west i mean pope francis often speaks of the church as a field hospital for mm -hmm. sinners like you know, we're sinners in the in the in the spiritual battle of our lives, and we've been we've been seriously wounded. Yeah. And we need to get healing, and that healing, that healing is is multifaceted. Yeah, that's how um, Saint John Chrysostom um, does an exegesis on the uh, on the Good Samaritan. Nice. Um, that the Good Samaritan is Christ, who comes and picks us up in our sin, being beaten by the by the uh, by the world and by sin, and we are picked up, put and brought to the inn, which was the hospital of its day, which is the church. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, and we are given the, you know, given the treatment of the church to continue the healing that Christ started um, in the sacraments. That's beautiful. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Well, 
you should pay more attention to my homeboys. So. <laughs> you have never mentioned that enough. That's true, I haven't. <laughs> He's been saving it. I've been saving it, yeah. This, she yeah. redeemed herself. That's true, she yeah. totally proved that she listens. I do listen, Great. although Joel does have better, better homilies. Ooh. Ouch. I think that's a mortal sin, critiquing Ooh. a deacon. Yeah. Well, the one time I went, the one, the one time I visited uh, your church, I, I got a, the homily was like Aquinas bashing. Literally, literally the one time I made it was it a little, there, so. It was a little there, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a good way to wrap up would be if any of us have any, any words of advice for any of our listeners who struggle with the things you mentioned, Cherie, with that inordinate sense of guilt that's holding us back from freedom and healthiness and happiness. Well, I think that's that God doesn't want us to stay there. You know, he didn't send his son for us to stay in this despair of original sin. And even going back to, to what Sarah said of like, there's hope in it. There's hope for something different. There's hope for transformation. There's hope for growing. And through many things, through the church, through adoration, through repentance, and also through psychological work and counseling, there's all these different ways and resources that you can come to for hope and for change. And that perhaps that over-obsessive feeling of guilt actually might be a psychological condition. Absolutely. I mean, what, what we talked about in the depression one, one of the diagnostic criteria for depression is despair. Is dis- well, yeah, despair over, uh, I forgot what it says, but uh, exactly, but excessive it's excess- yeah, excessive, excessive, excessive feelings of guilt. So that even if you are in that state, then maybe even talking with a professional in that regard might be might And be really you've good. talked about, off mic, you've talked to me about the similarities between um, scrupulosity and OCD. Yeah, OCD being obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think it, um, yeah, I think it's very, very common. I think obsessive compulsive disorder is a form of anxiety. Yeah. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. that is very present within scrupulosity as well. Cool. So. All right, well, stop sinning, folks. <laughs> it's like Just the least helpful <laughs> after all we said. Just That's stop why it's doing funny. It. Just, Just don't do it. Just stop it. Just stop like, it. Th- don't. Have you seen that? Was it like a Mad TV sketch or yeah, yeah with Bob Newhart? Yeah, pretty much what I'm saying. Just stop. Just stop. The world's worst therapist. All right, guys, stop sinning. Love you.